So here I am today in the middle of Asheville with all the noise. We'll probably hear a train before the time is done. And I'm standing in front of the tobacco barn of all places. Why am I here? It's at this place for the longest time that tobacco farmers would bring their crop to this place and uh, sell it at a price. And now you can find all sorts of other treasures in a spot like this. But I'm here in front of this place for this reason. Some of you may know the story of a guy named Jeffrey Weigand. He is a chemist. He worked for Union Carbide. He worked for a pharmaceutical company. Eventually, he gets a job at a tobacco company in Kentucky, which shall remain nameless if for no other reason it doesn't exist. And as an insider, as a chemist in that organization, in that business, he came to discover that that company was adding things into their cigarettes, additives that would make the blend of nicotine that much stronger and therefore that much more addictive. And consequently, that which is more addictive has a greater capacity to be cancer causing. And he blows the whistle and they fire him, as you'd expect they might. And he gets into the mess of the whole non-disclosure agreement until at some point through a weird set of um, unlikely and unrelated events, he ends up being in, um, interviewed by no less than 60 Minutes and its famous producer, Lowell Bergman, Mike Wallace does the interview. Well, in the middle of that, he is invited or asked if he's willing to be a key witness in a class action suit that might recover hundreds of millions of dollars on behalf of those who had contracted lung cancer and on the basis of a claim that his tobacco company had concealed evidence about that very uh, additive that they were adding and its capacity to be addictive. And in a scene I'm about to show you from the film version of his life, he's at a moment where he's having to weigh the cost and what it would take, what it would require of him to make that choice. So listen to this scene from the film called The Insider. Russell Crowe plays Jeffrey Wigand. The actual Attorney General of Mississippi is in it, and Al Pacino plays Lowell Bergman, the producer for 60 Minutes. Now, what this one is, is a temporary restraining order, a gag order, issued by a Kentucky court. Jeff Wigand, Michael Moore. Good to meet you, Dr. Wigand. Mike's our Attorney General down here. I was just explaining to Jeff, they got a Kentucky court to issue a, a gag order to stop his deposition today. Right. Now, they tried to get the Mississippi court to honor it, but the judge threw it out. However, for you, there is a more perilous effect to the gag order. Dr. Wargan, you, you do understand what can happen, don't you? I'm not free to testify it here. That's right. If you violate the Kentucky order, when you step foot back in Kentucky, they can find you in contempt and they can incarcerate you. And you ought to know that. Jail. Possibly, yes. That is one of the possible consequences of your testifying here today. That's right. How, do, how does one go, go to jail? What, what does my family do? Go on welfare? If my wife has to work, who's gonna look after the kids? Put food on the table. I mean, my children need me. If I'm not teaching, there's no medical. No medical, uh, even on copay, that's like tuition. Dr. Morgan, listen, you may not be able to do this thing. As I understand from Dick, you are a key witness. 
and I hope you don't withdraw. Um, I guess we'd all understand if you did. I heard about the uh, Kentucky gag order. I don't know what to do. seem to find the criteria to decide. It's too big a decision to make without being resolved in my own mind. The criteria by which he would make his decision, that's the thing he's wandering about on that Gulf Coast grassy area trying to contend with. What is the criteria to make such a momentous choice that he might be resolved in his own mind? He's got to ask himself, is it worth it? Now, I'm fairly certain that very few of us, if any of us, will ever find ourselves in a situation where we are called upon to be the key witness in a class action suit that is worth hundreds of millions of dollars for those who have something to gain by it. And yet all of us at different times find ourselves at crossroads because we're in the middle of a choice and that choice naturally lends itself to fear. And in that moment, we are having to ask ourselves, what most do we have to fear? What most do we have to lose? What is the criteria by which we can make a decision like that? We're in Daniel chapter 6, which is allegedly the most famous chapter in the entire book. It's all about Daniel being on the menu of a bunch of lions. But this story is not about lions. This story, this moment, is about fear and what determines what you most fear. And so we're gonna to try to listen to this story and pretend we've never heard it before. And we're gonna ask ourselves this question, what might we fear in this life? But what must we fear in this life? And then finally, why is it that that we must most fear? What might we fear? What must we fear? And why is it that that we must most fear? Try if you can to hear Daniel chapter six as if you've never heard it before. Our central text for today is found in Daniel 6. It pleased Darius to set over the kingdom 120 satraps to be throughout the whole kingdom, and over them three high officials, of whom Daniel was one, to whom these satraps should give account, so that the king might suffer no loss. Then this Daniel became distinguished above all the other high officials and satraps because an excellent spirit was in him, and the king planned to set him over the whole kingdom. Then the high officials and the satraps sought to find a ground for complaint against Daniel with regard to the kingdom, but they could find no ground for complaint or any fault because he was faithful, and no error or fault was found in him. Then these men said, We shall not find any ground for complaint against Daniel unless we find it in connection with the law of his God. Then these high officials and satraps came by agreement to the king and said to him, O King Darius, live forever. All the high officials of the kingdom, the prefects and the satraps, the counselors and the governors are agreed that the king should establish an ordinance and enforce an injunction 
that whoever makes petition to any god or man for thirty days except to you, O king, shall be cast into the den of lions. Now, O king, establish the injunction and sign the document so that it cannot be changed according to the law of the Medes and the Persians, which cannot be revoked. Therefore King Darius signed the document and injunction. When Daniel knew that the document had been signed, he went to his house, where he had windows in his upper chamber toward, open toward Jerusalem. He got down on his knees three times a day and prayed and gave thanks before his God, as he had done previously. Then these men came by agreement and found Daniel making petition and plea before his God. Then they came near and said before the king concerning the injunction, O king, did you not sign an injunction that anyone who makes petition to any god or man within thirty days except to you, O king, shall be cast into the den of lions? The king answered and said, The thing stands fast according to the law of the Medes and Persians, which cannot be revoked. Then they answered and said before the king, Daniel, who is one of the exiles from Judah, pays no attention to you, O king, or the injunction you have signed, but makes his petition three times a day. Then the king, when he heard these words, was much distressed, and set his mind to deliver Daniel, and he labored till the sun went down to rescue him. Then these men came by agreement to the king, and said to the king, Know, O king, that it is a law of the Medes and Persians, that no injunction or ordinance that the king establishes can be changed. Then the king commanded, and Daniel was brought and cast into the den of lions. The king declared to Daniel, May your God whom you serve continually deliver you. And a stone was brought and laid on the mouth of the den, and the king sealed it with his own signet and with the signet of his lord's that nothing might be changed concerning Daniel. Then the king went to his palace and spent the night fasting. No diversions were brought to him, and sleep fled from him. Then at break of day the king arose and went in haste to the den of lions. As he came near to the den where Daniel was, he cried out in a tone of anguish. The king declared to Daniel, O oh, Daniel, servant of the living God, has your God, whom you serve continually, been able to deliver you from the lions? Then Daniel said to the king, O king, live forever. My God sent his angel and shut the lions' mouths, and they have not harmed me, because I was found blameless before him. And also before you, O king, I have done no harm. Then the king was exceedingly glad and commanded that Daniel be taken up out of the den. So Daniel was taken up out of the den, and no kind of harm was found on him, because he had trusted in his God. And the king commanded, and those men who had maliciously accused Daniel were brought and cast into the den of lions, they, their children, and their wives. And before they reached the bottom of the den, the lions overpowered them and broke all their bones in pieces. Then King Darius wrote to all the peoples, nations, and languages that dwell in all the earth, Peace be multiplied to you. I make a decree that in all my royal dominion people are to tremble and fear before the God of Daniel, for he is the living God, enduring forever. His kingdom shall never be destroyed, and his dominion 
shall be to the end. He delivers and rescues. He works signs and wonders in heaven and on earth. He who has saved Daniel from the power of the lions. So this Daniel prospered during the reign of Darius and the reign of Cyrus the Persian. This is the word of the Lord. Okay, let's first talk about what in this life you might fear, and let's let Daniel hold us by the hand and talk about that. The, let's remember the context. If you've not been with us, the context is in the, around the 7th century BC, uh, the imperialistic nation of Babylon has conquered the southern kingdom of Israel, what's known as Judah. It has annexed that land. It has torn down its temple. It has exiled its brain trust to its own country. Daniel plus his three friends, the Fantastic Four, they have been assimilated into their new Babylonian context. They've been trained to serve the king of Babylon, King Nebuchadnezzar, at his command to be part of his royal court, and they've been commissioned to service. Years have passed, and now the world is under different authority, under different management. Now another king by the name of Darius is in place, but Darius has been so impressed with Daniel as Nebuchadnezzar was impressed with Daniel that he continues to empower him to work. And Daniel, in that moment, is appointed as one of three presidents over what would have been hundreds of provincial governors. Think of all those dudes sitting around the black table in the Star Wars talking to uh, Grand Moff Tarkin about what's important. Daniel would have been president over one of them, over several of them. And the problem with that is they don't really like it. This foreigner, this exiled Judahite in charge over them. And so what do they do? They try to hatch a plan to catch him in some sort of compromising condition. And the first time they try, they come up empty because Daniel, as we've seen so far, is squeaky clean. He's got nothing on him. They've got nothing on him and so they're stuck. And they realize that the only way they're ever gonna catch him in a compromising position is to find some sort of clash between whatever is Daniel's faith in God and whatever his allegiance and loyalty to King Darius is. And so these guys, these co-conspirators, these provincial governors that don't like being told what to do by an exiled Jew, they get King Darius to come up with a royal edict, an edict that you would be punishable by death if you were ever caught praying to anyone other than King Darius. That's the plan. And surely they think, knowing what they know of Daniel, that he will violate that edict at a moment's notice. And sure enough, the edict comes down, and Dar I mean, Daniel is not exactly low on the totem pole. He hears that, and what does he do? What does he do? He violates the order. He knows what's coming. He knows what's going to happen. And yet, even though he has been empowered in that moment, even though he himself believes that it is God who has brought him to this moment, even though he believes that he is there to serve this country and serve this king, even for the good of the world, now he realizes that he might soon be in violation of a royal edict that would make him, on pain of death, be punishable for it. He believes God had given Israel into Judah's, into Babylon's hand, and now also into Persia's hand under King Darius. And still, he has a choice to make, a choice that is, has to do with fear. Because think about it from Daniel's perspective for just a minute. Uh, Daniel doesn't just believe that he impressed people because he was naturally impressive. He believes God put him in that state. And in that situation and in that role, you might say he's been on something of a trajectory, a track. With every passing year, he continues to esteem himself with his skill, with his aptitude, with his finesse, with his diplomatic skill, and with every new promotion, he has greater and greater influence. 
And, you know, maybe you've never been the, uh, in the royal court of a Middle Eastern potentate, but you know what it's like to get promoted. You may know what it's like to be commended for your work. You know what it's like to be esteemed for a job well done, and there's a delight in that. There's a satisfaction in that, and it's nothing to be embarrassed by. And in that moment, Daniel, now having heard about this royal edict, is having to ask himself, what is that worth to him? What is its value? Because look, you probably remember being accepted into a club or a frat or an organization or whatever it might have been, or, or you may also remember about what it is to be satisfied for the first time you got a paycheck or the first time you got a commendation, the first time you got a promotion, or surely there's those scenarios that are far less formal in which you know, something happened and you got welcomed and accepted into a wider set of people. And in that moment, it was a thrill. You got juiced. It was a good day when that happened. And, and in that sense, you didn't feel like there was any problem to it. And you know what? There isn't. There is pleasure in that. And you know what? Daniel is out to remind us, even in the moment when we find pleasure at being commended, at being welcomed, about being esteemed and having new influence, is that with that pleasure, there is also a peril. There's a peril in place. For with every example and experience of being esteemed and growing in influence and having authority, it is very possible that in that new status, in that new condition, that you might be called upon to do certain things, to say certain things, to act in certain ways. And if you refuse to do so, you risk something. You risk loss. And that, as with Daniel and with anyone, could present you a certain experience of fear because in that moment you are realizing that you may have to forsake something that you love something that you perhaps never ever dreamed of forsaking out of fear of losing something else that is the moment Daniel finds himself in that is the moment that you and I find ourselves in inevitably in this life and in that moment what is the criteria by which you decide it was true of Jeffrey Wigand, it was true of Daniel, it's true of anybody in that situation. What you fear is what you fear most to lose. Let me just talk to students who are listening. Look, I, I know full well as a teenager once myself or as a student once myself, there are moments in which you are asking yourself, you are being asked to, to try something, to do something, to take something, to join something, to, to say something. In that moment, you are faced with a certain pressure. What do you want to do? And what do you most fear in that moment? What are you most out to lose? Are you most out to lose by missing out on something if you say no? Or do you have something more to lose by saying yes? Are you more to lose by being included in something or do you have more to lose by being excluded from that group? Everybody feels that and it doesn't matter how old you are, whether you're 8 or 88. The question is, by what criteria do you have to decide? From Jeffrey Wigand's point of view, the decision had to come down to what he most valued and therefore what he most had to fear to lose. It's the same way with Daniel and it's the same way with us. Everyone has certain criteria because everyone enters into situations where they have to ask themselves what they might end up being fearful of. 
So Daniel gives us a picture of what we might fear, but Daniel also gives us a picture of what we must fear. And he does so in a pretty spare way. The narrative doesn't go into a lot of detail at this point, but as soon as uh, uh, Daniel hears about this edict, the one thing that distinguishes him from Jeffrey Wigand is that he doesn't set himself to pacing about, wondering what is the criteria by which he must decide. He doesn't pace, he prays. He, he falls prey in violation to the very edict that he knew would make him punishable by death. And, and even in that few verses, talking about what he does when he prays, it actually has something for us in his prayer because it's not nothing what he's doing when he prays. His prayer is not uh, a flamboyant, ostentatious thing, but he's not being concealed either. Uh, the window's open. Anybody that wants to hear can. He's not asking to be heard, but he doesn't care if anybody does. And he's also not hasty about it. He's not abbreviated in his prayers. It says it was his standard practice to pray three times a day. And it was not an afterthought on his part. He was not absent-mindedly going uh, to prayer. It says he's on his knees whenever he prays in order to focus his whole mind and his whole body on what he's doing. And, and lastly, it's not a, a slavish rote, you know, something that he just feels like he needs to do, like you and I perhaps think we need to eat more fiber. This is something that he does in such a way that the one thing that's the most prominent in his prayers, now that he knows he's a marked man, is giving thanks to his Lord. He's in violation of King Darius, and yet he believes that God has given him this position, both first with Nebuchadnezzar and now with Darius several years later, and now he finds himself on the executioner's list. And in that moment, we find out from Daniel not just what we might fear, but what we must fear. And what we hear there is that what Daniel most feared and what he must fear was greater than everything else that he might fear, and that one thing was the Lord. It was the fear of his Lord. And if you read the Bible for any length of time, you, realizes that, you realize that the fear of the Lord is a rather prominent concept to understand it. If you don't know what it means to know God, then you don't know what it means to have the fear of the Lord. And yet, when you think about the phrase, if you just take it on its very bare terms, you might misunderstand the nature of that fear. Just consider Daniel's prayer. If the most prominent feature of Daniel's prayer in the midst of all of this treachery against him and now the state, state lethality marshaled against him, if, if thanksgiving is the most prominent feature of his prayer, then obviously this fear of the Lord is something a little bit different than just terror. It's something different than an animal that's caught in a corner. This is a fear that's something else. It's a fear... It's a fear about defiling something valuable. It's a fear of violating something, of, of harming something that you find worth in. It is a, a fear where you, are, you don't want to jeopardize something and, and you fear of the cost to repair it. Anybody that you love, there is a fear in that in harming them. There is a fear in harming those you love, in, in, in what you have between you and those you love. That's the kind of fear we have here. And for Daniel, in that moment, he's got prestige, he's got esteem, he's got responsibility, he's got influence, but in that moment, it's nothing. It's nothing compared to the fellowship and communion he has with his Lord. Look, Jeffrey Wigand 
when he worked for that tobacco company, he's making 300 grand a year, and that's 1990s dollars. And when this was all said and done and he lost that job, he was making 30 grand a year teaching chemistry and Japanese at a high school. What did it cost him? What hung in the balance from his perspective? Well, now instead of showing you the, the, uh, the film version of Jeffrey Wigand, I want you to listen to Jeffrey Wigand himself with a little help from Mike Wallace, who was interviewing him for that 60 Minutes interview. Today, three years after he was fired by Brown and Williamson, Dr. Jeffrey Wigand is the star witness in a U.S. Justice Department criminal investigation into the tobacco industry, which includes the question of whether B&W's former CEO lied to the U.S. Congress when he said that he believed that nicotine was not addictive. But Dr. Wigand is paying a heavy price for his decision to testify, as well as for breaking his confidentiality agreement by talking to us. His family life has been shattered. His reputation has been tarnished because of B&W's massive campaign designed to silence him and to discredit this former research chief turned whistleblower. They're trying to do what they can to paint you as irresponsible, a liar, well, I think the word they've used, Mike, is a master of deceit. You wish you hadn't come forward? You wish you hadn't blown the whistle? There are times I wish I hadn't done it, but there are times that I feel compelled to do it. Um, if you ask me if I would do it again, or if, it, if I think it's worth it, yeah. I think it's worth it. Uh, I think in the end, people will see the truth. Jeffrey Wigand had to make a calculation. He had to think about what he feared most to lose. And in that moment, he realized that the truth was of greater value than anything he might lose. That the help that he might do to countless thousands of people who were affected by the research that he knew about, that that was greater than any harm that might befall him. And there was harm. He lost a lot. He even lost parts of his family as a consequence. For Daniel, in his moment, the Lord was greater even than his life and anything else that he might lose, including his position. And in that moment, the Lord is the thing that he most feared and he must have feared. And that's a fear that doesn't simply cultivate it overnight. That's an understanding of his father that comes over time. It's not something you can fake. It's not something you can screw up. It's something that you learn. And that fear of the Lord was something not like a fearful slave to a cruel master. This is a fear like a son to a righteous and loving father. That's what he most feared. But why? We've talked about what he might have feared. And now we've talked about what he most feared, and now we're going to land this plane by asking ourselves the question, why is it that that he and we must most fear? Daniel prays. There's already a stakeout. They pick him up. These co-conspirators, they go to the king, even though the king is a little bit upset about this idea, this development, and they remind him, now king, you signed it. You put your signet ring on it, you're bound by your own law. And that's the irony of it. We ought not be surprised when we see what King Darius does, because it happens in real life that even those who do not share your faith, 
may still have an admiration for it, and surely King Darius did with Daniel. The ironies begin. King Darius looks for a loophole in his own law. When he can't get it, he's bound by it. What does he do? He prays. He prays that the Lord, Daniel's Lord, might save him. May your Lord, whom you serve, continually deliver you. This is the prayer of the king. And when all is said and done, Daniel, Daniel is taken to the place where he's thrown into a lion's den. And there it is King Darius who can't sleep, he can't eat, he's up first thing in the morning, and the first thing he does is runs, pulls up his hem and runs to the place of the den to figure out what's happened and calls out to Daniel, has your God whom you serve continually come to rescue you? And from within the den, one still small voice. No harm has befallen me, my king, and before you I have done no harm. In that moment we learn that Daniel has been rescued, and not only rescued, he's been vindicated. And all of those who were his co-conspirators meet a rather untimely end, including their family. You might fear all sorts of things that you value and you love and you find satisfaction in. What you and I must fear is the Lord your God. But why is that? Because while this chapter has Daniel at the forefront of it, it's really mostly about Daniel's God. And the greatest irony of the whole passage is that what we're most meant to learn comes not from the mouth of Daniel himself, but from the mouth of Darius, who is no believer and yet is. And it's in his mouth that he says, Darius, for your God is the living God, enduring forever. His kingdom shall never be destroyed and his dominion shall be to the end. He delivers and rescues. He works signs and wonders. God is most to be feared, Darius will say, because it is God who works wonders to rescue. It is God who works wonders to vindicate. Daniel went to sleep with lions in his midst and awoke alive. Jeffrey Wigand entered into his own version of the lion's den and lived to tell the tale. And yet if we want to be clear at the same time that we want to be fair, we have to realize that there are many whose belief in the God of wonders, who delivers and rescues, who goes into their version of the lion's den and do not emerge from it. Their faith is no less robust or formidable than Daniel's, and yet they do not survive the night. Polycarp, he was a first century Christian and one of the earliest martyrs of his day. And while he was being staked to a flame that he might die for his belief, he was remembered to say, immortalized with these words, 80 and six years have I served Christ, nor has he ever done me any harm. How then could I blaspheme my king who saved me? Here is one whose faith was true, who believed in a God of wonders, who believed in a God who rescues, who did not live beyond the fire in an earthly way. So what do we make of that? Is Daniel wrong? Did Daniel need to be corrected? He's not wrong. But there was one who was even greater than Daniel that came to, shall we say, underscore what Daniel knew, but also to clarify it. There was one who to his own disciples said at one particular moment, do not fear those who can kill the body. Don't fear them. 
And in more places than perhaps you and I in a rather comfortable setting in Western civilization might be afraid to imagine, there are more places in this world where people this night need to hear that word, do not fear those who can kill the body. But nearer to us in our world, there is still truth in that profound and poignant phrase. Do not kill, do not fear rather, those who can kick you out of the club if you refuse to denigrate yourself or someone else. Do not fear those who might take away your paycheck if you refuse to violate virtue or conscience. Uh, do not refuse or do not fear those who can turn everyone against you if you refuse to do something that is may perhaps popular but would diminish you in your own heart and diminish you in your sense of fellowship with the Lord. Don't fear that. Why? Because this is a God who works wonders to deliver and rescue, whether in this life or beyond it, because He already has, because He already has in His Son. In order for the Lord to rescue you, you are on a trajectory. You are on your own kind of track, not towards greater influence, but greater distance, distance from the one who made you. And to rescue you from that trajectory, this father had to not rescue his own son at first, that he would die. And then in order to vindicate his own holiness and vindicate his own mercy, he raised his own son from the dead. And in doing so, he vindicated you from all your sin. And he brought glory to his son who came to walk as Daniel did, knowing full well there was plenty that he might fear and knowing that there was only thing, one thing worth fearing and knowing precisely why he had to. It was in that son that he discovered what it was for us to live. Friends, by faith in that son, by faith in the one who walked as Daniel did and yet walked a road that Daniel never did or could, by faith in him, though ye die, yet shall ye live. But in the same sense, though you lose all, though you are cast out, though your reputation be soiled, though your opportunities dry up, yet you shall walk and you shall live. Let me end it on this note. There is a man named Henry Asawa Tanner. He was a painter, an artist, grew up in Philadelphia. And as a young artist, he was tied up to his very easel and just for being black was thrown out into a street. Henry Asawatana continued his painting degree. He moved to Paris and began to paint everything that he could and was esteemed and renowned and affirmed and given a number of accolades for his own work. But in the face of continued racism, both in America and elsewhere, he made a choice. He made a choice about what he valued. And in the face of those who would degrade him, he chose to point to his Lord by painting him. He chose to point to his Lord by painting the truth around him and of those who knew him, including this painting of the Annunciation to Mary of the birth of Jesus, including this painting of Daniel in the lion's den, the painting that you've seen posted every time we preach a sermon from this text. It is Henry Asawa Tanner, who in the face of racism chose to do something. He chose to point to his Lord. And near the end of his life, he received a letter from a pastor back in America who wondered 
if he might use a painting that Asawatanner had done entitled The Two Disciples. The Two Disciples that came to visit Jesus' tomb. Because it was from the words of that pastor that in their faces they looked like it's too good to be true. And because Tanner had captured that look on those faces, this pastor felt like that painting might say to all of those who are beginning to search for justice and work for justice, that though it might seem too good to be true, it might actually be worth their effort. And in reply, in giving permission to that pastor to use that painting, Asawa Tanner said this, that you finally win the day, there will be little doubt. I only think myself fortunate if the picture will, in however small degree, bring the thoughts and actions of my fellow man closer to our Lord and to our Master. He knew the criteria by which he had to decide. He knew what he had most to fear. He knew what he valued most. And when he believed his Lord that he did not need to fear those who would kill the body or who degrade him in a ditch, he chose to point to his Lord. That's the word for us. Do not fear. And then point to the one who loves you most, even with paint. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.